0: singing this morning. I hope that you have been blessed by the worship service thus far. I pray that now you will listen very carefully and intently as we go back to that book that we, that chapter that we read in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I hope to speak to you this morning about a very important topic I think for us. But first I'll have to confess to you that um, my favorite sport is Growing up, I've always played uh, the sport of basketball. It's been my favorite ever since I was little. I remember I was um, at my dad's church in South Carolina. Uh, They have uh, a a very large gymnasium, and uh, we would play basketball on Wednesday nights every single Wednesday after the service from when I was about in fifth grade on. I was always the annoying kid playing with all the college kids, (laughs) but that's why I learned to play, I guess. So I've always been playing and until I got injured a couple of years or two years ago, I guess, when I uh, tore my ACL. But anyways, I, I love playing basketball. I love watching basketball. I love studying the sport of basketball. And it, it got me to thinking, because I love reading about the game so much, is that what makes a basketball team a basketball team? What makes them successful? What makes them uh, find the ability to win when they shouldn't? What makes them find the ability to uh, go on runs and go on winning streaks and such? Is it their skill? Is it the individual skill of the team that makes them be able to win? Or their individual talent? Is Is it because they can all jump out of the gym and they're super athletic? Is that what makes a basketball team so incredibly great? I think those things are important, yes, you should be talented, (laughs) or you're not going to find a lot of success, but I think it's not the most important thing, and in fact, uh, one of my favorite sports writers, his name is Bill Simmons, he was a former NBA just fan and blogger, and then now he works in the NBA, and he works as a sports writer and commentator. He wrote this book a couple years ago, actually, it's been several years now, in 2009 I think it was published, called The Book of Basketball. And it's essentially, if you love the sport of basketball, it's like the Basketball Fan's Bible. It has so much history in it, and you can read it and find out pretty much anything you want. But the book's big theme was this idea of the secret, quote-unquote, to winning basketball. He spends an enormous amount of time talking about what's the secret, what has made all of the teams from, NBA, from the NBA history's incredible past so incredibly great. And in fact, he talks about it, he talks about meeting the Detroit Piston point guard legend Isaiah Thomas. He runs into him in Las Vegas and he asks him, what is the secret What made your Pistons team so great? What makes all of the Boston Celtics teams from the 50s and 60s so incredibly successful? And Isaiah Thomas has an ironic answer because he says it's not about basketball. It's not about basketball at all, actually. And in fact, Simmons argues that very point, that what has made all of the most successful players in NBA history so successful is that they care about winning above everything else. They disregard their stats. They disregard their personal egos. They disregard even perhaps sometimes all of their skill. And they channel it, they funnel it forward towards the, the overall success of the team. They forget about themselves and they care about the team above everything else. This is what makes them great. This is what makes them truly memorable and historic. It's all about unity. The thing that holds teams together is their unity within one another and how they have the same goal in mind. And I think that that's very applicable to the church. That what makes a church a church is its bonds between its members. You think about it, we can ask the same question, you know, like what makes a basketball team successful? What makes a church successful? Is it its denomination? Is it its demographic? Is it, is it is it's, its personal beliefs? Or is it the building? If, if it's about the building, if that's the deciding factor, then I think the Catholics have us beat because they have the nicest buildings. <laughs> but I don't think that that's what it's about. I don't think that the, the core and the crux of what a church is, is found in something that's tangible, in something that's material. Actually, I think it's in something that's experiential. It's something that we experience one with another. And that's why when you come to Philippians chapter 4, we see very clearly what Paul is in trying to engage these Philippian believers in believing. Paul loved this church. You'll notice right away in Philippians 4, he calls them dearly beloved twice. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for... My joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. This really means my dear friends. He mentions it twice because he wants to reiterate the fact how much he adores them and how much affection he has towards them. And that's because this church, the church of Philippi, was the first church plant of Paul in the continent of Europe. You can find and read that in Acts chapter sixteen. And he calls them my joy. In my crown, he found such a great spiritual gladness in, in, in learning of their developments in the faith, in the discipleship that they evidenced. Also, in, very, in the very fact that they stood with Paul. Remember where Paul is writing from. He's writing from house arrest at this time. And yet, this church has not been swayed or deterred by the stigma of associating with one who is in prison. Actually, look at Philippians 4 and verse 15. He says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you an odor of of a sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. They didn't stop their support of Paul. They didn't stop uh, giving him what he needed to continue the ministry, even, yes, even in prison. They stood with Paul. They stood with him, knowing that what he was doing was true and what was right. They believed in Paul. And so these dearly beloved, these dear friends of the Apostle Paul's are the same ones who he's addressing now in Philippians chapter 4. And really this entire book has been one in which he is seeking and striving to instill in them a sense of unity with one another. He doesn't want to hear of this beloved church of his succumb to uh, trivial disputes or divisions. And he, as such is why he emphasizes unity from the very beginning. In fact, look at Philippians 1 and look at verse 27. He starts out from the very beginning of the letter, uh, seeking and striving to get their minds on the same thing. He says, only let your conversation, verse 27, be as it becometh. The gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs. That ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's seeking to get them to as he says there strive together. To stand together for this gospel. For this good news of Jesus Christ. And in fact, throughout the letter, there's 14 or so references to unity using one phrase or the other. Uh, Phrases like one spirit or one accord or one mind and such. This is very clearly the ingredient of the church. The primary ingredient that, that Paul is stressing is unity. Being unified together towards the same mark. And this is how they will make it in in an age in which uh, persecution in the church was ripe, in which uh, many things were coming against them, false doctrine, false teaching, people who wish to separate and divide the church. This is how they would be able to stand together, to withstand all of that opposition. He's very clearly, I think, making the point that a unified people, a unified church that is standing and striving together for the sake of the gospel is the very chief way in which the lost are introduced to the things of the gospel. The people who don't believe in Christ, people who don't believe that Jesus is the Savior, one of the chief ways they see that Jesus is a Savior is the fact that he brings people from differing backgrounds together. We can fellowship with one another. Our unity is perhaps our best and greatest testimony. Such is why he again urges them to strive together, or as it is in verse 1 here in chapter 4, so stand fast in the Lord. Remain immovable in your fellowship with one another. Love God without rival and serve Him without compromise, is what He is saying. And so he closes this letter in chapter 4 with a very pointed and concerned dialogue of sorts, I think, on just the nature of church fellowship and gospel togetherness. And I think we have three lessons here of how we can stand together, how a church can be unified. How do we have unity? I think there's three things that we can see here in this chapter. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we as a church can have unity by, first of all, remembering our reconciliation. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Jacintychi, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. He's striving for reconciliation in this matter between these two ladies, Euodias and Sintiki. Reconciliation really means restore, restoration, reunion, a bringing together again of that which was broken. And he's seeking that these two ladies be reconciled together. And he calls them out. I love that he calls them out individually. You notice that? He says, I beseech Euodias and I also beseech Sintiki. He's calling them out by name and he's also addressing them individually. And, I, and just imagine the scene. Remember how these letters were delivered. So Paul has delivered this letter to Epaphroditus who is now returning to the church to read it much like in a sermon like this. In which one of the elders or deacons would have this apostolic letter and he would sit and just read it straight through. And I imagine as they're going along, they're being encouraged. They're being excited at the fact that Paul, the apostle, is writing to them. And then all of a sudden, as he's getting near the end, he calls out two ladies. <laughs> imagine the horror on their faces as Epaphroditus is reading and all of a sudden they hear their names. <laughs> and I'm sure they perked up. I'm sure they listened. Paul is mentioning us in his letter. He's calling us out. <laughs> he's calling us by name. And I think it's important that you see and you notice that he never indicates what their disagreement was about. He never indicates which side Euodius's or Syntichis, which side he favored. And I think that's because it doesn't really matter. It wasn't really about what their disagreement was. He is seeking and striving to get these ladies to remember. And yes, even the broader uh, congregation of the church to remember how they can be reconciled. Not just what they are to reconcile about, but how are they to reconcile. And notice again verse 2. He says, "...I beseech you, Odias, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord." And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. With Clements also and with many other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. You see what he's doing? He's directing their attention towards their redemption. Whose names are in the book of life. Remember the fact that your names are in that book which Jesus keeps. Your names have been written down by Jesus' blood. It doesn't matter what trivial thing you are arguing about. You are in the book of life. Your names are written forever in his blood. Remember that your names are there. And that's how you can be reconciled. You can be re- brought back together. Reunited and by remembering the fact that Jesus has saved both of you by his same blood. Remember your reconciliation. Remember how you have been saved. He says be of the same mind in the Lord. Find your agreement in Christ. This thing that you are arguing about Paul is saying. It pales in comparison to the fact that your names are written forever in that book of life. That book which lists all of the names of God's beloved children. Remember also the fact that you are on the same team. I think that's essentially what he's saying. You are my fellow laborers. You are God's yoke fellow in this great ministry of the gospel. You are on the same side. You're striving towards the same things. Remember that. Remember that you are on the same side as fellow laborers for the gospel that's where I think we see that our fellowship between believers can obviously be broken and lost when we get our sights off of the cross and onto ourselves such is perhaps what happened here between these two ladies and such is perhaps what was affecting the rest of this church as to our broken in fellowship it often leads to division and causing us to take sides as it were and Paul wishes that that would not happen Paul wishes they would again be, uh, take their eyes off of themselves and bring it back again on to that beloved Christ. Whom they served and whom they are now worshipping and whom they are now sacrificing their lives for. And that's what he is seeking to instill in this church. A sense of unity. Not uniformity. Not that we just have to be the same and look the same, it's unity. You see, that's the great big difference between the two. The gospel doesn't preach uniformity, it preaches unity. Because in unity, there's, uh, there's lots of space for being different, but we have the same goal. Uniformity says, you have to be like me, whereas unity says, be like Jesus. Actually, look at another chapter, another letter that Paul wrote Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 13, because he says something similar to this church, which I think is supremely important. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, and look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace Who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off. And to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, what he is getting that church there to uh, believe and to be reminded of and to be focused on is the fact that, yes, they were brought from many different regions, many different backgrounds, many different uh, ways of life, but they are now one in Jesus Christ. He is their foundation. He, as he says there so beautifully, is their chief cornerstone. He is what holds them together. And it reminds me of this quote from uh, the old pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His name was D.G. Barnhouse. And he says in one of his commentaries, Protestantism is sometimes accused of being divided into a great many divisions, which are more apparent than real. But there is a sense in which we are divided, even as the north wall of a building is separate and distinct from the west wall. Is it not true that though one stone be in the north wall 100 feet away from the corner, and another stone be in the west wall 100 feet from that same corner, the place where the walls touch is at the corner. I'll meet you at the corner, and I can say to every man in Christ, I'll meet you at the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I think that's what Paul was getting these believers to be reminded of. That yes, you may be separate on different sides of whatever issue you are facing. But you can meet one another. You can have your unity. You can have your goal. You can have all of that come and meet together at the corner. Which is Jesus Christ himself. He is our cornerstone. He is our meeting ground in which all conflicts subside. We can apply that to ourselves. Whether we're Steelers fans or Eagles fans. Whether we, are, uh, we want church this way or whether we want church that way. Whether we are Republicans or whether we are Democrats. We meet at the corner. We meet at Jesus Christ. He is what brings us together as a body of believers to be united in the same front, striving for His gospel, not striving for our preference or our way, it's striving for Jesus Christ alone, striving for His way, striving for His truth. This is how we find our companionship with those we disagree with. We find it in this resolute truth of Jesus Christ alone. It's in us constantly remembering the enormous lengths to which God went to save us. You think about what he was talking there about there in Ephesians chapter 2. How God brought all of those who were afar off and has brought them now near. He's brought them nigh into the household of God. This is what our hope is. God has brought us close by his son Jesus. By his son Jesus coming for us. And this is how we have unity. Remembering our reconciliation. Remembering the fact that there is nothing that is so disjointed that it cannot be restored again. And that there is no relationship that is too far gone, too fractured to be remade by God. How true that must have been for Paul here. Think about Paul's very life. The fact that in Acts chapter 8 we read of the fact that this same man Paul who was then Saul was wreaking havoc on the church. That he was going into people that were then called of the way and he was seeking them out. He was dragging them out of their homes and persecuting them and yes in fact executing them. And that very same man, Paul, is now here tenderly urging and writing for the reconciliation of the church. This man knew what reconciling grace was like. Which is why he was so passionate about it. He knew that his life was forever changed by the fact that he has been reconciled to God. And how can we not then be reconciled to one another? By remembering the same God which brings us all into one family. Remember your reconciliation. But number two, quickly, the church is united by also rejoicing in the ruins. Look at verse 4. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord all the way, and again I say, Rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the ruins. That word rejoice there in verse 4 literally means joy in the Lord. And I think that, that verse, you see it on signs and picture frames and whatnot, it can become cliche, it become kind of a pithy thing to repeat. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He's not just giving them some sort of platitude to repeat in the bad times. He is seeking them to find immense joy in something that is true, in something that is solid. That's what he says there rejoice in the Lord. Not just in something you feel, but in something, and in someone, in fact, that's better, someone that we can know. And he gives his grounds for that rejoicing in what comes next. Because look at verse 5, that phrase at the end of it, I think is important to this whole passage. Where he says, the Lord is at hand. How can you have uh, peace in the midst of great suffering? How can you rejoice in the midst of times and seasons of grief? It's knowing that the Lord is at hand. That literally means the Lord is in control. He is sovereign because he is God. And you are not. (laughs) Let me read a verse for you. I have not been able to escape this verse since I studied it last year. It's from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You can turn there if you like. You don't have to. I will, hopefully I will find it soon. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There is an incredible verse. And it is incredible because it is so simple. King Solomon is making this confession. He says in Ephesians 5 verse 2. Be not rash with thy mouth. And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Listen. For God is in heaven. And thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. God is God, and you are not. And that might be the most elementary and fundamental thing that we can learn and say and repeat, but I think that is the foundation for all of our peace and rejoicing in the midst of life's griefs. God is God. And we are not. He is sovereign and we are not. We are fickle and silly and sometimes foolish and faithless. And God is sovereign and always faithful and always in control. He has ordained everything in our life by the order of his fingers. And he is the one that whom our future rests. All of our days ahead they lie solely in his sovereign grace. So must we rest in it. So must we rejoice in it. The Lord is at hand. Such is why Paul can say, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. God has ordained it. You can rejoice in it and you don't have to worry. Yes, you can be stressed, but vent those stresses to the Lord. That's where he says, let your supplication be known unto God. God is over it all. And the more you confess those griefs, confess those things in which you are grieving about, the more the God of peace will be with you. Look at verse 7 again. Where Paul says. And the peace of God. Which passeth all understanding. Shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The more we are on our knees. Before the Lord and Savior. The sovereign king of this universe. The more we will be kept by that peace. Which he only can give. That word Keep, I think, is important to know. It's actually better translated the word guard or watch as if you are being watched over and guarded as with a garrison. A garrison of soldiers. It reminds you, right, of what Paul is experiencing right now. He's being guarded and garrisoned by a Roman uh, sentry. And he's using that very illustration of what God does for us with his peace. He guards us with it. He keeps us and grounds us and secures us when we are on our knees. Because he knows that that is the only way we will have peace in the ruins. We can rejoice in them. We can find peace in them. We can let all of our anxieties fall off of us. When knowing that the Lord is at hand and he is guarding us by his peace. And that our grounds for rejoicing are not found in our circumstances or the things that are around us, but in him alone. Such is why in verse 7, and you see that phrase, the peace of God. He flips it in verse 9, where he says at the end, the God of Peace. The one who has this peace that passes all understanding, he is gifting that to you in his gospel. And he's gifting it to you to know that you can have immense peace in the midst of life's ruins. And such is our message. In times that are difficult, in times that don't make sense, in times that are hard, we speak to this transcendent peace of God. The peace that is found in the midst of ruins. This is our message as God's church. This is how we are brought together and united. Because we share this message with the world. The message of rejoicing always. Not out of some sense of just ignoring life's problems. Ignoring life's uh, hardships. But it is born in enduring them. Knowing that our Lord is sovereign over them. And our Lord is with us in them. The Lord is at hand. With that in our heads and that in our minds, this is what the church should be. It should be a, a haven for hurting people. It should be a church, uh, the church should be a place where we can rejoice in the ruins by not ignoring that there's ruins in life, but except, in fact, acknowledging them and bearing them for one another. Turn with me to one passage quickly, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There is a beautiful passage here where he talks about this very thing. Talks about how the fact that the church is united in the gospel when they demonstrate this otherworldly care for one another. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 25 For Paul writes again to this church that there should be no schism, no division, no separation in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Just as God, by his reconciliation and redemption of us, has brought us into one body of believers in Christ. Yes, we hear as we suffer, the whole body suffers. When we are grieving, we grieve with one another. When we are rejoicing, we rejoice with one another. Because we are a family. We are a church. Christians are those who are uniquely called and empowered to come alongside those who are broken. Come alongside those who are grieving because we have this message here in Philippians 4. This message of uncanny peace. One writer said it this way, which I love. He says, we are not commanded to end suffering. We are commanded to be the kind of people who can stand with those who suffer and bear their burdens with them. This is a description of what Christ called the church. We are not uh, those who have been uniquely called to have a miracle word to end life's problems. But we have been given a true and a better word called the gospel which gives us peace in the midst of life's problems. It's such is what we share, such as what we have in our mouths, such as what we have in our hearts. We suffer with those who suffer because we know that um, we can suffer too. We uh, suffer with those who suffer because we know we are honest with ourselves and we are patient with others knowing that we may be next. We suffer because we have this incredible gospel of peace which comes from the God of peace. Quickly number three. The last way that we can have unity in the church. Not only by remembering our reconciliation. And only by also rejoicing in the ruins. But actually number three. Lastly in verses eight and nine. I think we see also unity in the church is found when we reflect on the relevant. Reflect on the relevant. Look at verse eight again. Paul says finally brethren. Whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received, and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. I think here he is encouraging just that. Reflect on the relevant. Reflect on what matters most in this life. Now, verse 8 has been taught, I'm sure you've heard sermons on this verse countless times. And it's usually often taught, I think rightly so, as sort of a biblical grid for discernment in our life. Especially, most often I've heard it taught, maybe perhaps to youth groups or what, what not, to uh, be discerning in your entertainment choices, right? <laughs> if you're trying to figure out what book to read or what movie to watch or whatever, uh, is it True? Is it honest? Is it pure? Is it lovely? And so forth. And if it doesn't fit that bill, obviously, you should probably discard that as something to be entertained by. And I think obviously Paul is encouraging that church this way. But I think more than that, I think just championing a grid of sorts doesn't really do anything for unity. Because we can all have differing ways we discern. We can all have differing ways in which we uh, apply that grid to our lives. I don't think a grid of discernment does anything to forge unity. And I think that's because what Paul is really doing here is he's trying to get their minds, without outright saying it, he's getting their minds to go back to the, the one... Who is the true and better source of all truth. The true and better source of all purity and loveliness and beauty and all of those things and all excellence. He's getting them to think on Jesus himself. He is the one who is perfectly pure. Who is perfectly just. Who is perfectly true. Who is perfectly in, perfect in beauty. Think on that thing. Think on that person. Reflect on Jesus Christ. I think Paul's charge here is not to think uh, or to cleave to a particular grid of discernment. He's saying, cleave to a person. Cleave to the person with by whose blood you have been reconciled. By whose blood you can now find peace. Reflect on that person. That person who was crucified for you. That's how you have unity in the church. Reflecting on Jesus Christ. And in fact the great preacher and expositor of the Bible. Alexander McLaren. He said this. Thinking on these things is not merely a meditating upon abstractions. But it is clutching and living in and with and by the living loving Lord and Savior of all. I think that's so perfect and so true and so beautiful. And the fact that Paul is not just getting them to think on some abstract lovely thing. He is getting their minds to think about who is lovely, who is true, who is pure. Jesus himself. That's what we have as a church We don't have some abstract good thing that we are promoting and preaching. We are not championing a system of rules or even a code of ethics. When we come here we are pledging our allegiance to to a person. We are aligning ourselves and we are preaching to the world that we believe that this person lived and died. And yes he resurrected once again for us. And we believe it so much that we are willing to spend our lives for that. We are willing to die for that person. This is our gospel. It's no imaginary thing. It's no abstract thing. It's a real thing. And yes it is a tangible thing in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a human thing in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I was, I was thinking as I was studying this. That that's what makes that scene in John chapter 20 so beautiful, right? Remember in John chapter 20 where the disciples after the crucifixion, they have gotten so scared that their teacher and master has now been crucified and he's been dead for three days. In fact, in John 20, we read the fact that they've locked their doors out of fear of the Jews. And then Jesus comes in. He he makes himself uh, appear and transition through the closed door to present himself to doubting Thomas, which I'm sure many of the disciples were doubting. But what makes that scene so beautiful is not that the fact that Jesus was a spirit and that he was some ethereal body in which Thomas couldn't touch. He says to Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. He was a person who lives and breathes and he was living and breathing there. And he is living and breathing now for us right now. He is at hand. He is on his throne. He is in control and he is still sovereign. And he is a person who lives for us. He is a person who died for us. And he is a person who still reigns for us. This is who we champion. This is who we have as our king, as our savior, as a person this is what bolsters my faith beyond any other thing in the world. Is the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. His very lungs were crying out on that cross for me. That he sweat and he bled that, and he laid his life down so that I might find my life in his death. This to me is the secret to church unity. It's forgetting ourselves and remembering that person. It's forgetting what we want, what what makes us perhaps more comfortable, what makes us perhaps uh, better. Because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It's not about us, it's about that person, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for us and shed his blood for us. This is what the church is about. This is how unity is forged in the church. That person, Jesus Christ. The church is not defined by its wits, not by its knowledge, not by its uh, associations, but by its reconciliation in rejoicing and reflection on Jesus Christ. This is how we are united. This is how, as Paul was saying here, this is how we are, will be made to stand together. Not because we have bricks or mortar. Not because we have morals or traditions that we follow. Not because we are all saintly people. But because we have the grace of Of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what keeps us. This is what draws us together. This is what forges us together. So as we can do here as Paul says. So that we might so stand fast. Because we are standing fast. Standing together in Jesus Christ. Let us pray.